Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer as we begin. Precious Father, I come before you thanking you for the Sabbath, this precious time when we get to rest in you. We thank you that you can take us away from the cares of the world when we can come humbly before your throne and lay our burdens at your feet. Oh, Lord, I come before you as a sinner in need of your saving grace. I come before you asking and pleading for your Holy Spirit. I ask, oh God, that you will create in us a clean heart, that you will take away our wicked hearts, that you will pump new DNA in us, the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary, that we would have that same blood. Oh, that we would have the mind of Christ is my prayer this evening. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. As it was said on Wednesday night, Revelation is the highlight of the Bible. It is the cherry on top. It is revealing God's character. It is his love letter to the church. And when you study the book of Revelation, you see a chiastic structure. From chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 21, you see this chiasm. And as you look at the chiastic structure, and then you get to chapter 22, and we, get, we see heaven, you go to the middle of the book, and you see chapter 12. And in chapter 12, dead smack, you get to verse 7. That's where we're going to begin our study this evening, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, as we look at the, the message when Jesus said, I am. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. This is, by the way, where my mother got my name from. Revelation 12, verse 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was there a place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. And Satan was deceived, the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Many of us have read these passages hundreds of times. But the part that I want to emphasize this evening is not 7, 8, and 9. As we looked at that on Wednesday night, the part I want to emphasize is verse 11. In the middle of this book of Revelation, in the middle of, of, of dragons, in the middle of frogs and beasts, we see this love letter to the church, and in verse 11 it says, And they overcame him by the what, everyone? By the blood of the Lamb. At the heart of Revelation is the cross. At the heart of Revelation is the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me. Because of the fall of man. Because Adam and Eve said, I am. Because they wanted to be like God. Because they listened to the devil's lies when he said that God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because you'll be like him. And the reason why they ate of this fruit, if you remember the study yesterday, is because they believed what Satan said. That they would be like God. That God was keeping something from them. The next scene that we see, if you read the story of redemption and patriarchs and prophet, is a beautiful scene. 
It's a scene in heaven when Christ goes before the Father. And many of us have looked at this passage. Many of us have have heard of what Jesus did, how he pleaded to be our sacrifice. But I never caught this before. And and I'm going to ask them to pull up this quote. This quote is powerful. It's in Story of Redemption. I believe it's page 42, paragraph 1. Sorrow-filled heaven. Sorrow-filled heaven as it was realized that man was lost. And that world which God had created was to be filled with mortals doomed to misery, sickness, and death. And there was no way of escape for the offender. No way out. No escape. The whole family of Adam must die. I saw the lovely Jesus and beheld an expression of sympathy and sorrow upon his countenance. Soon I saw him approach the exceeding bright light which had shrouded the Father. So man And woman, they have defected. They have sinned. Jesus goes before the Father. Now, I never caught this before. I want to share with you this. How many times does it say? Three times he was shut in by the glorious light about the Father. And the third time he came out from the Father, his person could be seen. His countenance was calm, free from all perplexity and doubt, and shone with benevolence and loveliness, Such as words cannot express. Now, the reason I want to share with you this quote is is I thought that the moment man sinned, Jesus went to the Father and said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to go and be a sacrifice. And God said, sounds like a plan. But reading this quote and studying it from patriarchs and prophets and the story of redemption, what we see is something different. Jesus goes before the Father and pleads not once. Not two times, but three times can I be the sacrifice for mankind. Ellen White says this, and this is not going to be on the screen, so I'm going to read this to you. She says this a couple pages later. Said the angel, so Ellen White is brought into heaven. She sees the great controversy. She's writing it down. She's, She's noting what's taking place, and she speaks to her angel, and her angel speaks back to her. And the angel said to Ellen White, Think you that the father yielded up his dearly beloved son without a struggle? No. No, it was even a struggle with the God of heaven, whether to let guilty man perish or to give his beloved son to die. I think we fail to realize the sacrifice that God had made. We read through John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and we, we almost miss that verse, how it's pregnant with meaning, how it was a struggle for God to give up his son. Many of you probably know of the story of a sailor. He happened to be also a pastor. He's a a pastor, but he had a hobby for sailing. And and, and as he is taking his son out, one thing they love to do was cruise on on an easy Friday or Saturday afternoon. And this pastor would would occasionally bring his son, and his son would bring some friends from school. And on this particular day, the story goes that the winds were boisterous, and there was a storm. And at this moment, the father, as he was setting the sail, and as, as he was navigating the waters, both his son and his son's friend were thrown in the water. The waters were cold and icy. The waves surrounded them. He had one life jacket, one life rope. Who does he give it to? 
his son, who he knows has a relationship with Jesus, his son who he shares the pulpit with, or does he give that life jacket to a stranger? Barely knows his name. The story goes, the father, looking at his son with tears in his eyes, throws the rope to the other, to the other boy. Why? Because he knew. He knew that one day he would see his son again. Beloved, it's not in creation, but in redemption, that our value was determined. One of my childhood hobbies growing up was building airplanes. I had a fairly strict upbringing. My mom wouldn't let me watch television. I think she let me watch MacGyver as a kid or something. You know, that was about it. And I couldn't play video games either, so I would... So, so what would I, what would, yeah, now it's a blessing, amen to that. But back, at, back in the day, I'm like, what am I going to do for fun? You know, we lived in the city. And so I began to make airplanes. And as I would make airplanes, this story stuck out to me. This, this boy, he made an airplane, and if you've ever made a model airplane, sometimes it can take weeks and months. And I would make these airplanes, and one mistake could mess this thing up. I remember I would make these airplanes, and this, I read this story, or I heard the story of this boy, and this boy also made this airplane, and he was flying it around and flying it around. The wind took it, went far away from him. He couldn't find it anymore, and, and one day as he was looking in, he said, I'm going to search the local hobby shop to get the supplies and the parts needed so I can make, this, make another airplane. He goes into the hobby shop, and as he's looking for the parts and supplies, he sees his airplane, and he goes to the shop owner and says, Mr., that's my airplane. He says, no, 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 that's not your airplane. I got this fair and square. He says, no, that's my airplane. He says, if you want it, you got to buy it. So the young boy went outside, and he told his father, and his father said, well, you want it, you better work for it. So this young boy, he, he went, mowed the lawn, cut grass, cleaned windows, did everything he could, worked a couple of weeks. And, and after a month of working, he went back to the shop and he looked at the store owner, he looked at the storekeeper and he said, I want my airplane, here's your money. And then as the, as the store owner took the prized plane from the shelf, gave it to the boy, the boy grabbed the plane, cradled it under his arms and he says, you're mine. I made you and now I bought you. And beloved, that's what Christ did for you and for me. He made you, he fashioned you in his own image, but he didn't just do that. He also, he also bought you with a price. Let's go in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 as we study the story of what happened, in heaven, what happened to mankind. In Genesis chapter 3, Jesus has now successfully convinced his father that he should come down to be a sacrifice. And as he's coming to investigate Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, we know this story. He goes looking for, for Adam, and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam, of course, was hiding. The first game of hide-and-go-seek you see in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, God is investigating. He's trying to find out what happened to his beloved human race. And in Genesis chapter 3, we know what happens. The blame game happens. Adam blames his, his wife. His wife blames the serpent. And I love what God does. Jesus starts off by telling them good news. The very first prophecy in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3 and verse 15, 
The prophecy starts by saying, I will put enmity. Does anyone know what that word enmity is? Intense hatred. I will put intense hatred between you, talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and it shall bruise your head or crush your head, and in the process you shall bruise his heel. Jesus gave good news before he delivered the bad news. And this is where you'll want to use your handout. What I've done for you is I, on the handout, show you the seven curses given at the Garden of Eden. Seven curses given at the Garden of Eden. And you want to pay careful attention to this because not only are we given seven curses, but at the end of this sermon, I'm going to share with you this, the, how the seven curses were taken away at the cross. So seven curses given at the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 verse 16, sorrow for childbirth. Sorrow for childbirth, curse number one. Curse number two, verse 17, curse is the ground that you will work. Not, on, not only will it be cursed, but there is sorrow for the work. Genesis 3, verse 18, thorns and thistles is the fourth curse. Five, you're going to experience sweat. Ladies, for those of you who don't like to sweat, this is where it came from. Sweat of your face, Genesis 3, verse 19. And then again in the last two, dust you are and dust you shall return, Genesis 3, verse 19. And then in Genesis 3, verse 24, we see separation from what I call heaven or the Garden of Eden. Seven curses at the Garden of Eden. But the beautiful thing is, as we said, God had good news for them. Not only would he be their substitute, he would also be their example. And I love what it says, you know, in Revelation chapter 13, many times we think of that chapter as the chapter of beasts. You have beast number one, the Catholic Church, beast number two, USA and Bible prophecy. But something we fail to see is in the middle of Revelation, in the middle of these beasts, not only in Revelation chapter 12, but in chapter 13, it says how the, the, the lamb was slain from the foundations of the earth and how our names are written in the book of life. With bad news, God is trying to tell us the good news. So we know what happens. Jesus comes down in Matthew 1, verse 21, to come down like you and me. As the Bible says, he came to save us from our sins. You know, I think for a majority of Christendom, the idea of Christ coming down on this earth is not significant because they don't understand the humanity of Christ. In other words, they don't understand when Ellen White says in The Desire of Ages that Jesus came with 4,000 years of the human race being degraded. They didn't understand the genealogies when we look at that Jesus had skeletons in his family closet. They didn't understand Romans 8 verse 3 when it says Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. They didn't understand when Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 says that he had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered. In other words, Jesus coming down on this earth was not automatic. Many times we think, oh, Jesus came down to this earth. He knew who he was. He knew who, what he was doing. He knew his mission. That is not true. Jesus came down to this earth not knowing anything. And I think of him as a young man. Or as a boy, 
I think of him as it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that he grew. He had a grow. Imagine what it was like growing up. And the Desire of Ages paints this picture of Jesus being constantly taunted and tempted by the devil himself. And Jesus would have to sing scripture songs and hymns to get away from the temptations of Satan. And and, and here's something I didn't understand or realize until I, I read this story carefully. Did you know that the other kids would bully Jesus? Jesus was bullied in Nazareth, that he grew up in the hood. He didn't grow up in no really nice territory. He didn't grow up in, in an area where, where you know, all the rich kids lived. He grew up in the bad neighborhoods, the other side of the train tracks. And I love how Ellen White paints the picture that any time he was discouraged, he would sing. He would read the Psalms. Now, I'm trying to imagine this picture, and I hope I can paint this the right way. Imagine Jesus is growing up, and his mother Mary tells Jesus about the special birth that he had. Jesus, you know, when when you were born, it was amazing. Angels lit up the sky like the 4th of July, you know. (laughs) Jesus, when you were born, kings afar visited you. Presented gifts at your feet. Now, I don't know what you were like as a kid. I I know what I was like. I was a pretty messed up kid. And my mom always had stories about me. And sometimes I remember, you know, being a teenager or so, uh, I would ask my mom, hey, tell me that story again. And my mom would tell me the story or tell me some funny story when I was three years old or four years old or five years old. And, And I'm trying to imagine that Jesus asking his mother, can you tell me that story again? And he's trying to piece together the events that happened when he was a baby, born in a manger. And he's trying, to, he's trying to think of how that relates to the prophecies he's reading about in, in the Psalms and in Isaiah. Could you imagine what it was like in Luke 2, verse 42, when it says, Jesus now being 12 years old. They go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he's putting everything together. He's putting together the story that his mother told him. He's putting together the Psalms and the scripture songs his mother would would, uh, sing to him. And he's trying to think about who this Messiah is that he's been hearing about his entire life. And at 12 years old, could you imagine him going to Jerusalem... After reading maybe Isaiah, chapter 53, after going through the Psalms, chapter 12, and him going to the Passover feast, and as he looks at the priests right about to strike the head of the lamb, the Holy Spirit whispering in his ear, that's you. And it finally settles in his head. That he's the Messiah. Twelve years old. With this great responsibility to bear. You're the Messiah. Now here's what I find fascinating about this story. Jesus knows at twelve years old he's the Messiah. But how old was he when he started his ministry? 
What do you do for 18 years knowing that you're the Messiah? What do you do for 18 years? Hammering away. What do you do for 18 years as a carpenter? As a humble carpenter in Nazareth, knowing your mission in life is to save the world. I submit to you today, this is my main point. I submit to you today what Jesus did during those 18 years is study, study, study. Now that he knew that he was the Messiah, he also knew the great responsibility. As he looked at Daniel chapter 8, and as he studied Daniel chapter 9, he saw that there was a timeline that he must follow. Now, how do you know what you're supposed to do? John chapter 5 verse 38 says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think they are eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Now, when the Bible says search the scriptures, when John says search the scriptures, is he referring to the New Testament or the Old Testament? Old Testament. Beloved, I believe that Jesus was studying the scriptures as a treasure map, trying to figure out what he was going to do. The moment he started his ministry, could you imagine what it was like? 13 years old, 14 years old, 15 years old, 16 years old, 18 years old, 20 years old, 25 years old, knowing that the time is ticking and there is going to be a day when you're going to put up the sign permanently closed. Now I submit to you today that he studied the history of the Jews and he related to his ministry. And how do I know that? I did this study and I want to share it with you. It's on your paper. Watch this. Look at the history of the Jews. The first one, and I apologize, I guess the screen isn't getting all of it. Look at the history of the Jews. Abraham left his home in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Remember, God calls him out, get out of your country, and I'll make thee a great nation. Jesus left his home, which is heaven, to be the desire of all nations. Look at the second one. Israel escaped death by famine by moving to Egypt. Jesus escaped death by the sword by moving where? To Egypt. Number three. Israel was God's firstborn and was called out of Egypt. Do you remember in Exodus when God is talking to Moses and he says, Israel is my firstborn and I'm calling you out of Egypt. Jesus was God's firstborn and he was also called out of Egypt. Moses studied and fulfilled the 400-year prophecy. Remember the 400-year prophecy in Genesis? Moses studied that. He knew that he, there needed to be a deliverer. That's why he, uh, he, killed the, he killed the the Egyptian, thank you, the, the Egyptian soldier because he wanted to start right then and there. That's when we're going to start. I studied the prophecy. This is where, when we're going to do this thing. Jesus studied and fulfilled the 490-year prophecy. Let's keep going. Moses is, escaped uh, the, the baby death penalty. Jesus also escaped the, the baby death penalty. When Pharaoh's son died, the Jews could leave Egypt. When Herod died, Jesus could leave Egypt. The Jews were baptized 
then went to the wilderness for 40 years. Remember going through the Red Sea? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about that as being their baptism. They get baptized, and what happens next? They go straight to the wilderness, and they're there for 40 years. By the way, it should have been 40 days. If you look at the journey, if you look at the map, from Egypt to Canaan should have taken 40 days, but it ended up taking 40 years. Now, this is interesting. Jesus was baptized, then went to the desert for how long? Do you understand how the stories of old, do you understand how the bedtime stories that you have grown up hearing about Moses and about Abraham and about Noah, all of those things were a treasure map or a guide for Jesus to look at so he would know his ministry on earth. And this is my favorite one, the last one. The Jews received the law at Mount Sinai. Jesus explained the law at the Mount of Blessings. I don't know if that one's in there. I thought that would be extra for you. Because Jesus studied, because he searched the scriptures, we can see that the entire Bible is a testimony of who, everyone? Jesus. That's why when you go to, do you remember the story on the walk to Emmaus? Do you remember the, those two men? As they were walking to Emmaus, Jesus went behind them and asked them and said, hey, what's going on? They said, where have you been this whole time? And Jesus asked them, tell me what's going on. And they said, you haven't heard about Jesus and how he died? And then Jesus says, what do you think of all this? And they said, we don't know what to think. It's the third day and we don't know where he is, basically. Kind of a funny story if you think about it. And then Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, what is the theme of the Bible? He said unto them these words, which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses. In other words, I'm starting in Genesis, and I'm going through the prophets and the Psalms, basically the entire Old Testament. Jesus gives them a Bible study on the walk to Emmaus, and he says this, what is the theme of the Bible? What is the Old Testament about, everyone? It's about Jesus. He showed them a Bible study concerning me. In other words, he showed them, I will show you how I know this Jesus guy is the Messiah. I will show you how you know that he is going to resurrect on the third day. Because Jesus studied his Bible... He wanted others. He wanted his followers, his disciples to study the Bible. And, of course, we, we know this from yesterday. Elder Boar brought this out. The only way we are not going to be deceived at the end of times, when the, deceptions look so, when the deception of the devil looks so close to the real thing, is only if we are diligent students of God's word. Many of you have probably gotten this the question before, how come the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs, right? Very simple. The, the bottom line is the Bible is not a zoo book. <laughs> it, that's the simple answer. When someone, if you are studying the biography of Ronald Reagan, you don't ask someone and say, can you show me where dinosaurs are in the, the biography of Ronald Reagan? You don't do that. Why? You know the theme of that book. It's a biography of the person. The Bible is a biography of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. The Bible is not an almanac. The Bible is not a dictionary. The Bible is not a zoo book. The Bible is not a map. The Bible is the testimony, the life, and the guide of Jesus. 
And I submit to you today that if the Bible is our guidebook, if the Bible was Jesus' guidebook, why aren't we studying it? They used to call us the people of, uh, after the book, right? People by the book. There was a time when people would hear the name Adventist and they would say, well, I'm not going to debate you. What happened to that time? My wife and I spent a significant part of the year knocking on doors. Those of you who don't knock doors, you should. It's good for your character. <laughs> and I am shocked when I knock on the doors and we meet different people and and we have dialogued with them. They end up buying one of our books. And at the very end, they say, I want to know what religious denomination you are. And we say, Seventh-day Adventists. More often than not, I would say maybe seven or eight out of ten, the answer I get is, what's that? You know, if we were doing our job, we wouldn't get that. Why is it that people know who the Mormons are? Why is it people know who the Jehovah's Witnesses are? They're knocking on doors. It, it, it's almost ironic. I knock on a door and I have to say, oh, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon. <laughs> they all know who that is. That, oh, I, I thought you were a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. And then I say, oh, no, no, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Oh, good, what's that? Beloved, the reason why we are in this Laodicean malaise of a Christian walk that we're in, living through a blasé, insepid excuse of a Christian life is because we're not following the Bible. Is because we are not doing what God has instructed. And here God has given us his love letter, his precious truth, and I am floored, I'm absolutely floored when I go to our academies, and I love our academies, I'm a product of the biggest academy in the world, Lomelin Academy, but I am floored when I talk to our students, the future of this church, and they have no idea what Revelation 13 is about. No idea how to defend about the, the, the secret rapture. No idea, can't even give me two verses about the Sabbath. What's going on with our church? The great preacher C.D. Brooks says, I want my church back. When are we going to get to that time of primitive godliness? When are we going to get to that time where, where just how Jesus searched the scriptures diligently for 18 years? From, and he did it more than that, but I bet you he was studying like a madman from 12 years old to 30 years old. How do I know that? He went toe-to-toe -to with the best of the best, the doctors of the law. And he schooled them at their own book. Why? Because he didn't go to the seminary. Why? Because he didn't get some fancy degree. The reason why he did that is he studied. That same knowledge that was available to Jesus, and I'm probably slaughtering this quote. Ellen White says, there is nothing that Christ had available to him on this earth that is not available to you. In other words, if you want to know your Bible the way Jesus did, it's right there. You know, I like to share this usually about myself. I went to school. I learned business. And somehow God called me into the ministry. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I've had the opportunity to share, to preach, to evangelistic meetings. 
currently teach at a Bible college. And the secret I tell everyone when I preach an evangelistic series is, I never took a theology class. Now, in no way, shape, or form am I, am I trying to brag. What I'm trying to say is you don't need another man to teach you what God is trying to teach you. Now, it is helpful. Of course, we can learn some things that are helpful. But the point that I want to share with you today is that somehow we have gotten this idea, we've gotten this, this thought that I can't study the Bible, it's difficult, and someone else has to teach it to me. You show me that in Scripture. The same information available to Jesus is available to you, and let me say this, and more. Jesus had the Old Testament. Guess what you have? You have the Old and New and uh, the spirit of prophecy. What's your excuse? What I love about the Bible, when I study it, I have to confess something. I used to think the Old Testament was boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have mercy. Just like the young man who sat up there, I, couldn't, I didn't know what to look at in Lamentations. I agree with you. It's a, it's a pretty long book, too. And then when someone shared with me that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, that was monumental to me. And it made me want to look and see how I could see Jesus in the Bible. For example, you look at the ark, and, and just like if we look at the ark, the ark was ordinary on the outside, but divinity held it together. And all who accepted the ark were saved. Jesus was ordinary on the outside, but div divine on the inside. And all who accepted him were saved. You look at the story of Isaac, and uh, Isaac was Abraham's only son. He volunteered to be a sacrifice, and by faith, he had to trust his father, even though he didn't want to be a sacrifice. Jesus is God's only son and willing to be sacrificed even though in Gethsemane, Jesus cried out, Father, is there any other way to do this? The story of Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave to a foreign nation so that one day he can save his people. Jesus was betrayed by his disciples, given to the Romans so that one day he can save his people. The story of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, then warned the people of Nineveh to repent and if they didn't repent, their city would be destroyed in 40 days. Jesus, as we know this, was in the heart of the earth for three days. And he warned the Jews, if they didn't repent, their city, Jerusalem, would be destroyed in 40 years. Beloved, I hope and pray that this message has inspired you to study the word of God in a deeper way. And let me say this, as we're beginning to close. In Genesis, we look at the seven curses. Jesus came down with good news. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to be the substitution of the death penalty. But not only did he take the place of Adam and Eve, Jesus also took away those seven curses. In Isaiah 53, in verse 4, it says, sorrow for childbirth. Jesus would take it away. In fact, go in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. 
want you to see this. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. If you look at the story of Jesus, you will find how he took away those sorrows. In Isaiah 53 verse 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God to be afflicted. Christ wants to take away those sorrows that were given in Genesis. In 53 verse 2, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus wanted to take away the curse of the ground. That's why it talks about him being a plant. We see in John 16, verse 20, he wants to take away the sorrow for work. In Matthew 27, verse 29, he put on his brow a crown of thorns to take away the curse of the, of, of the thorns and thistles. We see in Luke 22, verse 44, that Jesus, he sweat great drops of blood, saying that I will take away the very curse of sweat. I will bear it on me. We see in Mark 15 and verse 39 that he was willing to go to the grave to take away death. He was willing to die the second death for you and for me. Dust you art and dust you shall return. Jesus wanted to take away that curse in Mark 15, 39. And then finally in John 19, verse 41, we see that Jesus was willing to be cut off from the Father. The love of Jesus which constrains us. The love of Jesus, how he died for us while we were yet sinners. The love of Jesus that wants to take away our stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. Jesus was not only our substitute, beloved. He was our example. In Genesis 3, verse 15, the first prophecy is, I will crush the head of the serpent. Did you know that God wants you to do the same? Go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, verse 20, as we close. Romans 16, verse 20. The beautiful thing about God is he showed us the way. And at the cross, he told Satan, and he says, not only will I defeat you, but my people will defeat you as well. And in Romans 16, verse 20, one of the most precious promises in all the Bible, one of my favorite passages, and the God of peace shall crush Satan under whose feet, everyone? Whose feet? Your feet. The God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Beloved, God is looking for a people who is willing to follow him, even if it means death. God is looking for a people who is willing to take on the sorrows and the sins. That God is looking for a people who 
who wants to do away with the things of this world and, and follow the life that he lived. That's why he says, take up your cross and follow me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, tells us to run the race of patience that is set before us. As I think of this passage, I think of a specific story. It was not too long ago that many people said running a four-minute mile was impossible. According to legend, experts said that it wasn't just dangerous, it's, there's no way the human body can break the four-minute mile, mile barrier. Further legends hold that people had tried for over a thousand years to break the barrier, even tying bulls behind them to increase the incentive to do the impossible. In the 1940s, the mile record was pushed to four minutes and one second where it stood for nine years as, as runners, runners struggled with the idea that just maybe the experts were right. Perhaps the human body had reached its limit. But on May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister, who happened to be a med student, 25 years old, broke the four-minute barrier running in three minutes and 59 seconds, four-tenths of a second. You know the ironic thing about this? After Bannister did it, everyone else did it. 24 people broke that minute record after he did it. Beloved, we have thought that the defeating the devil was an impossibility. So God came down, Jesus came to be like you and me, with no advantages, level playing ground. I submit to you today that he had a disadvantage. And he overcame Satan in the flesh, showing that it is possible. And just how God crush the head of the serpent. Just how Jesus was able to crush the head of the serpent, he is asking and looking for a generation of young and old. People who are willing to also crush the head of the serpent. People who are going to put away their differences. People who are not going to follow an American dream, but God's dream. People who are going to say, not my will, but thy will, O God. People who are going to follow what it says in Revelation 14, that they followed the Lamb wherever He went. This evening as I close, I just have a couple of appeals for you. First, as we learn this evening that Jesus studied the Bible vigorously, I think of my friend who studies the Bible many hours of the day. and Someone asked him, why do you study your Bible so hard? And he said these words, I'm cramming for my final exam. How many of us realize that we have not been taking God's word seriously? And this evening we want to say, God, help me. If it means waking me up earlier, if it means me deleting my Facebook account, if it means me not checking the World Cup scores, whatever it is, God, please 
Help me to be in your word. How many of you want to say that? Raise your hand. Praise God. The last appeal I have for you is this. God doesn't want to tarry anymore. You think he's waiting for another pathetic story of women who are sold into sex slaves? Do you think God is waiting for another story of a kid going into an elementary school and blasting innocent kids? Do you think God is waiting for another AIDS baby to be born in Zimbabwe? Absolutely not. But the conditions of him coming is simple. When we receive the seal of God, as Revelation 7 speaks about, or Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, says, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, he will come to take them as his own. How many of us this evening, we see, we understand the seriousness of what it means to be a disciple? And we want to say, God, help me to follow you wherever you go. Help me to put away the things of the world. Help me to produce your character so you can come soon. For those of you who want to say that, I ask that you stand with me as we close with prayer. You want to say, God, I want to be part of that special group. Ellen White says, strive to be part of the 144,000, a special group of people who will see the coming of our God. Praise God. Father, we come before you and we understand it's only in Christ alone then we, that we could receive the righteousness required to make it into heaven. And we understand the sin that we're caught in. And this evening we freely come to you asking that you will forgive us. Forgive us for losing sight of eternity. Forgive us for placing school and work and leisure ahead of your work. This evening we come before you, and just as Jesus said in front of the courts, I am willing to go and die for them, we stand before you and say, Lord, I am willing to stand for you. But though we are willing, we understand that the flesh is weak. And so we ask for supernatural strength. I pray for the person who has raised their hand that they want more time studying the Bible, that you will make that happen. I pray that we will return to be people by the book. And God, help us to be part of that special group. Help us to never lose sight of the focus of primitive godliness. Help us to never lose that burning desire to see you in the clouds one day, face to face. We thank you for the love that you've shown us on Calvary. And we love and thank you so much. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.